I'm particularly excited about our time together this morning as we begin uh, a new series, Walking Through the Gospel of John. And <clears throat> John has always been a, uh, a tremendous, uh, tremendous, uh, I've always really enjoyed spending time in the Gospel of John, reading through the Gospel of John, because it's so different than the other three Gospel accounts, uh, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so as we, uh, as we approach the Gospel of John this morning, I'm, I'm particularly excited because we kind of come face to face and uh, we come right to the, to the head of John's thesis right in the beginning. Uh, he holds nothing back as he, um, as he introduces and, and begins the, or begins the introduction, I should say. And so the Gospel of John in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 5, the title of the message this morning, The Incarnate Christ, Preexistence and Divinity. So if you found your place in the Gospel of John, say amen. Let's read together, or read along with me as I read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Let me first say as we open this passage this morning, that the depth of John's words and the profundity of John's words here are amazing. And it's quite simple in one sense, but then very, very deep and profound in another. And I think that will become evident as we walk through the passage this morning. But before we do, let us let us pray. Father, as we open your word this morning. I pray that you would be exalted among us. I pray, God, that you would grip our hearts with a little bit of, of understanding of just how wonderfully awesome you are. I pray, God, that we would see your majesty in the midst of this text this morning and that, Holy Spirit, you would illumine our, our minds to understand, open our eyes to see, God, and, 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 and convict our hearts so that we would love your word and want our lives to be in line with your word. Thank you so much, Father, for your word and how we can come and meet in this place today and worship you. And now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we come to know Jesus in the Gospel of John, we come to know God. That's really at the heart of the Gospel of John. As we come to know Jesus, we come to know God. The Gospel of John is written by John, not John the Baptist. Instead, John the son of Zebedee, one of the sons of thunder. He's seen throughout Jesus' ministry as being one of those twelve who are so close, who are closest with Jesus. He is known throughout the Gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved or the one whom Jesus loved. 
And the gospel was most likely written during the time of A.D. 70 to 100, probably just after the fall of the temple. And John is concerned in his gospel to write to both Jew and Gentile alike, to believers and unbelievers. In fact, at the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 20, verse 31, we have one of the greatest purpose statements that we find in all of the Gospels, aside from the Gospel of Luke. He says this, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So John's Gospel, as I mentioned a moment ago, is much different than the synoptic accounts of the Gospel. And for that reason, many have said early on that we ought to dismiss the Gospel of John and not consider it as part of, uh, part of the, the canon of Scripture that we ought not look at it, but I disagree. And I would say that just because it's different than the synoptics, it should not alarm us. In fact, one preacher Uh, One preacher says, his name J.C. Riley, comments this about John's gospel saying, he says, John says nothing about our Lord's birth and infancy, his temptation, the Sermon on the Mount, the transfiguration, the prophecy about Jerusalem and the appointment of the Lord's Supper. He gives us very few miracles and even fewer parables. But the thing which John does relate are among the most precious treasures in Christian that Christians possess. The chapter about Nicodemus, the woman of Samaria, the raising of Lazarus and our Lord's appearance to Peter after his resurrection at the Sea of Galilee, the public discourses, the private discourses, and above all, the prayer of the 17th chapter are some of the most valuable portions of Scripture. The Gospel of John is tremendous. And as we walk through it, I'm excited that we'll be able to to camp out in the Gospel of John for quite some time. One preacher replied this way to the argument that it's so different from the synoptics. He said, a a young married student once told how he met his wife for the first time. He had met her in an attic. Later, he changed his story. He claimed to have met her at a Bible study. Still later, he seemed to change his story yet again. He said he, he reported that he first met his wife on a couch. But in the end, all three facts were true. They did meet at a Bible study that was being held in an upstairs attic apartment. And the man was sitting beside his future wife on the couch during the Bible study. Sometimes an incident can be described in such different ways that the accounts can first seem contradictory. But when we examine things a little bit closer, we see that these different perspectives really complement one another instead of contradict one another. In the Synoptic Gospels, the writers are concerned, at least in part, with developing the messianic theme of Jesus and showing how Jesus is the Messiah as you read through the Gospels. But in the Gospel of John, John does something much differently. John begins his Gospel in such a way as to live up to that name, a son of thunder. And in in, in thunderous fashion, he reveals the identity of Jesus Christ from the beginning. He leaves nothing for us to wonder about. He reveals the divine identity of the incarnate word. He doesn't develop a theme. Instead, he develops a thesis. And he gives us this thesis in the beginning. And throughout the entire Gospel of John, he is showing us why Jesus is God. And so John sets out to prove through his gospel account that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. 
sent from the Father, but at the same time co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, and that salvation will occur only through this one, the promised Messiah. And so, this morning, we begin with the statement that John himself begins with. In verse 1, we begin by saying, first off, that Jesus is God. Jesus is God Uh, As we walk through verse 5, we see that Jesus is God, and we'll spend our time this morning in verses 1 and 2 seeing why this passage, why John is teaching us that Jesus is God and, and claiming that Jesus himself is divine as God is divine. But we'll also see that Jesus being God, Jesus is also creator, and that Jesus is also eternal life giver. That in the person of Jesus Christ, God becoming flesh, that we have one who has come and who has given life to all those who will believe in him and profess faith in him. But also this one who has come to give life, we see him as the creator, the creator of the cosmos, the creator of the universe. And he would descend and walk upon the earth and take the form of man and humbly, humbly live out his life on the earth in order that we might have salvation, in order that He might identify with us in our temptation, in our frailty, that He might win the victory over sin and death and defeat the grave on behalf of all those who would place faith and trust in Him. And so first this morning, we must begin with this foundational truth that Jesus is God. That Jesus is God. And there are three realities in verse 1 and 2 that point us to this truth that Jesus is God. And the first reality there is that he is co-eternal. Jesus is co-eternal. The very first phrase he says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. That beginning, literally, it means to have source or origin. It's speaking about the very beginning, the very beginning of time. John is speaking of eternity past. He's speaking about way back before time even began and eternity past. And John is intentionally pointing us back toward Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Now, I want to say that I think this is so primary and so foundational for us today because many people question whether or not Jesus is necessary in order to attain salvation, in order to enter into heaven. Many people today claim that there are different ways to enter heaven. There are different ways to attain salvation. There are different ways to come into the presence of God. And I think this passage, I know this passage, directly contradicts and refutes that heresy, that false teaching. And so John points us back to Genesis 1, chapter 1, which the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the same wording to speak about the beginning. John 1, 1, or Genesis 1, 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This intentional language that John is using is is making this connection between the word as the origin and source of creation. And the point is that God always has been and God always will be. And John's drawing a parallel. Have you ever sat and just thought, pondered about the beginning? I'm sure you have. 
I have, I'm sure you have. And so as I've sat and, and pondered the beginning and tried to think back, my mind tries to reach back and keep going and keep going until it reaches really utter failure. It's like sensory overload. Maybe you've got more mental stamina than me and you can think back a little bit further, but my mind eventually just goes blank. I don't know about you, but that's what happens to me, okay? Uh, Call me a simpleton, I don't know. But when I think back far enough, I just can't get past God. God was there in the beginning. The Bible doesn't, the Bible just assumes that God was there in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, right? And this connection that John is pointing us to is that in the beginning was the Word, pointing us back to that connection of when God was there in the beginning, I told Lee Curry and Russell Nolan yesterday, we were at a, uh, a block party. We had one in the neighborhood, and I, I, told, I told Lee, I said, we were just sharing a goofy story. I don't even remember what it was about. I said, but I said, get ready, guys. I'm about to blow your mind with this. And so I proceeded to tell my goofy story, and then Lee leans over, and he says to me, he said, uh, he said you hear that? That's the sound of my mind being blown. <laughs> I, I said, no, I, I don't hear it. You know, the reality is that when we try to comprehend the origin of God, we try to comprehend who created God, it really does blow our minds. We can't think past God. We begin with God as the creator. We begin with Him as the initiator, as the origin of all things. And so John points us backward to the formative foundations of the cosmos before nothing became something, before there was even time. He says, God was. The Word was. Think about it. In the beginning, day six, right? There were man, there was man and animals. And before that, on day five, God had created the fish and the birds of the air. And before that, on day four, he had created light and darkness, or he had light and day, light and night, excuse me, sun and moon. And before that, on day three, he had separated the water from the land, and the land became fertile. And then even before that, on day two, he had separated the waters to make an expanse of the heavens and the sea, where the water was beneath the expanse and above was, or the water was beneath and the expanse was above. But even before that, even before that, on day one, he said, let there be light. And the light pierced the darkness and God saw that it was good and he separated light from darkness But then before that, before the beginning, before that, there was God in eternity past. In the beginning, there was God. The triune Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, one essence, one God. Our confession of faith, the Baptist faith and message says it this way. The eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without the vision of nature, essence, our being. It says, in the beginning was the Word. Verse 2 says, he was in the beginning with God, speaking about this Word but I, I don't want to assume that we're all at the same point in our understanding or that we're all on the same page this morning regarding this word. And so if you look there in verse 1, in the beginning was the word. 
Maybe in your scripture translation, that's capitalized, that word, right? Word is capitalized, and you can underline that, that word, word, all right? There's a correlation that John is making here, and we, we find out exactly who this word is if we jump down to verse 14 of chapter 1. Because in verse 14 of chapter 1, he tells us, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. The glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so if we're asking the question, how do we know that this word was a distinct person from God? I think this is how we see and know that the word was a distinct person from God. The word was there in the beginning with God, and the word was God. We'll see in a moment. But this word is Jesus Christ, the one who became flesh. This word is logos in the Greek. That's how it's translated, logos. And it's where we get our word for logic from. We get this idea of reason and logic. Our word logic comes directly from the word logos. And so I want us to understand what was happening as John is writing to Jew and Gentile alike. It was a philosophical concept for the Greeks. It it stood for reason. It helped them to understand reason. And it gave order to their universe. It was one of the most important principles for the Greeks, for Gentiles in the universe. It was a source of wisdom for them. And it was their force of power. But the Jews also had their own understanding of this concept of the word. The Jews had this concept or this understanding of this concept as deeply rooted in their understanding of God and his communication with his people throughout the Old Testament. In fact, it was really a twofold concept for the Jew. It was this understanding of the acts of God and the will of God. And in the acts of God, it would be God demonstrating his power through his speech as he spoke and things came into existence as we see in Genesis chapter 1. But then the will of God, it was communicated through his covenant with his people in that Old Testament formula, the word of the Lord. And so through this act of power, through the acts of God in creation, we see it in in Genesis 1 when God created the heavens and the earth and we walk through the days of creation. But then if you turn to Psalm 33, in Psalm 33, 6, I want to show you another example in psalm 33 6 he, the psalmist writes by the word of the lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their host he gathers the waters from the sea as a heap and he lays up the deeps in storehouses let all the earth fear the lord let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him listen for he spoke and it was done He commanded it, and it stood fast. You hear that? This is the authority of God's word and the power of God's word. As he speaks, it happens. As he says it, it occurs. When he speaks, it happens. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. This is absolute power, right? Absolute power for God. God having absolute power as he proclaims and creates and as he speaks i don't know about you but as a parent this absolute power uh, i i think it's modeled in our home because anytime i speak our kids do exactly what i say 
<laughs> yeah, my, my son's nodding his head in agreement this morning, right? We, we know absolute power, parents, right? Because as we speak, when we say it, it happens. No, it, it doesn't generally work that way. I don't like having to say it twice or even three times, and generally I, I try not to do that. But, you know, we have to give our kids a little bit of grace, right? When it comes to absolute power, absolute authority, this is God ruling. As He speaks, it happens. God knows nothing different. As He commands, the earth obeys. But He is gracious with us and that as He commands and speaks to us and entreats us through His Word, there are many times when we don't obey, but God in His grace and His mercy toward us, He, he forgives us. In fact, that's the whole point of why Christ comes in order to redeem God's creation, in order to redeem His people. There is this idea and understanding that the Jews have of this word in direct connection to the authority and the power of God. But then there's also this second idea that the Jews have of this connection or this understanding of the word of God. And it has to do with their communication and understanding the love of God, the word of the Lord, that 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 command that would come to God's people through His Word, through the prophets, that would speak to them and would entreat His people to hear Him and to follow Him. The Jews knew of and and they believed in the acts of God and, and the power of God and they experienced divine communication through His servants, the prophets. Now I want you to think about it for a moment. Think about what John masterfully does here in the very opening sentence of his gospel. He takes this idea, he transcends all culture and all barriers, and he introduces the incarnate word, Jesus, and he presents Jesus to the Greeks as the personification of their philosophy and of of reason. And he says that Jesus is the very source of wisdom. He is the force of power in the universe who creates all things, and he has become like us. He has become man. And he says to the Jews, he says that Jesus is the very one through whom God God has demonstrated his creative power in forming and creating the cosmos. And he is the one who is the personification of God in his love to creation. And the word has now become flesh, the incarnate one. God has stepped down out of heaven and he has become man and he has walked among men. And he is identified with his people. This is the love of God. And what John is telling us is that Jesus is God. He is God in that He is co-eternal. In the beginning was the Word. We can't get around that. Jesus was with God in the beginning. In fact, He restates it in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. But then there's a second reality that we see in this verse that, that solidifies this truth that Jesus is God. And the second reality that we see is that He is distinctly present with God. He is distinctly present with God. That second clause, and the word was with God. Pretty simple and pretty straightforward. But think about it. And the word was with God. Our English translations kind of miss the intensity of the original language here. It could could be rendered, the word was face to face with God. And here's what it describes. 
It describes the divine interaction between God the Father and God the Son. And it means more than just being in one another's presence. It means, it means there is this reciprocal relationship between God the Father and God the Son. There is this intimate interaction happening between the Father and the Son as they communicate their divine will and are in unity in the creation of all things. John, 1 John 1, 2 says, and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. You see, in the beginning, from all eternity, Jesus was with God the Father and had direct personal, uh, had distinct personal attributes with God and was the second person of the Trinity and the relationship between the Father and the Son, I want us to see this this morning. It's important for us to understand it. The relationship between the Father and the Son, it's real. It's real interaction. Two distinct people in one unity, in one unified presence. Beyond that, it's really hard to even comprehend, isn't it? The Trinity of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, one essence. J.C. Rao comments, he says, The nature of this union between the Father and the Son, we have no mental capacity to explain. He pegged me there. Augustine, he draws illustrations from the Son and, and its rays and from fire and the light of fire, which though two distinct things, he says, yet are inseparably united, so that where the one is, the other is. But even he says, all illustrations on such subjects halt and fail. Jesus claims in John chapter 10, verse 30, that we'll get to later on, that Jesus says, I and the Father are one. You see, he is co-eternal with God, and he is distinctly present with God at the same time. John fourteen nine, Jesus says to Philip, Have I been so long with you, Philip, and yet you have not come to know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And regarding the mystery and comprehension of the Holy Trinity, one commentator said, it is rashness to search too far into it. It is piety to believe it. It is eternal to know it. It is life eternal to know it. And we can never have such a full comprehension of it till we come to enjoy it. This passage is teaching us that this one, Jesus Christ, is God in flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was there in the presence of God, face to face with God but also, this word teaches us this morning and tells us this morning, not only was he face to face with God in the presence of God, but that he is also co-equal with God. He is co-eternal. He is distinct in his personhood and his presence. But then he is also co-equal with God. For look what it says at the last phrase. And the word was God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the Word was God. 
If this was an anthem that John is singing of praise, it's as if at this point John begins to belt out the high note here. As he, as he speaks and, or as he, as he writes, he said, not only did the word exist from all eternity and have face-to-face fellowship with God, but the word is God. Jesus himself is God. To the many who would refute the teachings of Christianity and say that Jesus is not God, Jesus is a God, or Jesus is a way to God, or Jesus was a good teacher, I want to submit to us this morning that this passage directly refutes that false teaching that Jesus is more than just a good teacher, that Jesus is more than just a good man. Jesus was more than just a moral or an ethical teacher or a leader among the Pharisees. Jesus is God in flesh. This passage teaches us and assures us and affirms us that he himself is God in the flesh. The word was God. The unity of the word and God are so tightly knit together that they are one and the same, the two distinct persons, but of the same essence. And this is one of the clearest declarations in all of Scripture attributing complete divinity to Jesus Christ. The Word was God. I want you to think for a moment about those implications. That if the Word was God, as John says, as we believe Scripture to teach, then when Jesus speaks, God speaks, doesn't He? When Jesus heals, God heals. When Jesus confronts, God confronts. When we read in God's word and we see that Jesus comes to the multitudes and he he feeds the thousands. When Jesus is feeding the thousands, God is feeding the thousands. And even in our own life, when... The Holy Spirit, as John teaches us about the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes as the helper, the paraclete, the comforter in the life of his children, that God himself dwells within the believer. By the power of the Holy Spirit within the life of God's children, that he himself is, is in the presence of the people of God. He is among us. That we, he is in our presence. And we, as we live and follow him, walk with him. The presence of Jesus is the presence of God. And the teaching of Jesus will express the will of God. And from the 4th century all the way to the day and even before, after this teaching, there were heresies that began to crop up that would challenge this word, that would challenge the deity of Christ. I want to ask you this morning, how important is the doctrine of the deity of Christ? How important is the Trinity for the Christian, for the believer today. And I would argue and and I would encourage us and exhort us to consider that it is foundational and it is very important. It's a foundational importance for the church today. It is a foundational importance that as we come to Jesus Christ, we see him as God in flesh, that we see him as one who God in creating the entire universe and creating his people also stepped down out of heaven and took on the form of man and became, as verse 14 says, flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his 
glory, the glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, that this one has come, that he would give life and that all those who believe in him would have eternal life. Now, this is the hope of the gospel. This is the hope of the gospel of Christ, that according to Scripture, there is only one true God, and consequently, one true way to come to God, and that is through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the only begotten from the Father. And it's this foundational truth of Scripture that sets Christianity apart from every other religion, every other religion. Many religions say that Jesus was a great religious man. But Christianity says that he was God in flesh. And here's the distinction. Every other religion is built on working your way to God. That God's at the top and everyone's climbing to get to the top. But Christianity is different. It's different because the God of the Bible descended down to man and made a way to bring man to God. We don't have to earn our way to God. We have one God who has come down to us and he has paved the way for us to come to God in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is the hope of the gospel. This is why we cannot, we cannot deny and lose the divinity of Jesus Christ because in Jesus, God came down and made this way for us to come to him. This is the hope of the gospel. This is why we can have joy in living for Christ. This is why we can have security in knowing that Jesus himself has saved us and has secured for us a place in eternity. And this is the hope of the gospel. Not that we would have to earn our own way or try to grope and find our own way. Listen, God's not in heaven looking down on creation, watching us grope and try to figure out how we're going to make it there, or how we're going to be a good enough person in order to earn God's favor. That's not the God of Christianity. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the love of Jesus Christ. The God of Scripture is clear in that He stepped down out of heaven. He walked this earth. He identified with His people And that he went to the cross and he died on the cross. And three days later, he rose from the cross and he ascended to the Father where he stayed at the Father's right hand and sent the Helper, his Holy Spirit, that he talks about in John chapter 14 to come so that all who believe in God would be sealed with this inheritance, Ephesians chapter 1, of the Holy Spirit and that we would then have eternal life in God and this seal, it's the seal for the redemption and the day of our inheritance in Christ so that we will be with God, we will be with Christ in glory. Now, when we look at, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was face to face with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It has got to give us hope to know that our Savior is one who has eternally existed. He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. He was in God's presence in the beginning before there was time. He was not born of God and the union between God and Mary in the sense that we have the virgin birth. He wasn't, he wasn't the product of created order by God. No, he existed in the presence of God before time ever began. And as we 
look at the person of Jesus Christ and we look at our own lives this morning. We see, as John so thunderously declares, Jesus is God. I want to ask you this morning, is this Jesus, the divine Messiah, the incarnate Christ, the one who is preexistent and who has divinity? Is he the one that you are trusting in for salvation? Is this Jesus, is this the one that you're trusting in for salvation? Have we renounced every other way of trying to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and trying to come before God? Have we renounced every other way and are we trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone to grant us and give us salvation? How about in our daily living, church? Are we trusting in the power and the supply of Jesus Christ by His Holy Spirit to strengthen us to walk according to his ways and to strengthen us to live the Christian life. I want to ask us this morning that we would consider consider these things before the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to ask us this morning to spend time in prayer. Maybe there's somebody here this morning who needed to hear that Jesus was God in flesh. Maybe there's somebody here this morning who needed to know that Jesus is the Savior, that God come down from heaven. Maybe this morning the Lord has been working in your heart and it's time for you to surrender and quit running and surrender to God and trust Him as Savior and Lord. That you can nail down for a fact that this Jesus wasn't just some good man, that He is the Savior of the world from the Father. Whatever be the situation we find ourselves in this morning, I want to encourage you to do business with the Lord, to seek Him, to seek His face. Don't leave this place without having your salvation in Jesus Christ secure this morning. The worship team is going to come and play. And I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to have a time of response. And during this time of response, you can come forward and I would love to be able to pray with you. If you have questions about what it means to trust and know Jesus Christ as Savior, I would love to be able to speak with you about that. Or if there's just something that you need to be in prayer about before the Lord and you just want to kneel down and spend time in prayer, I want to encourage you to do that this morning as we prepare our hearts and our minds to partake of the Lord's Supper. Let us pray. God, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you stepped down out of heaven and humbly took upon flesh. And that as eternal life giver, you have come to give life and light to men. Thank you that you've pierced the darkness of our hearts. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us strength this morning to respond to you, to respond to your word. Pray for those of us here this morning who are struggling that you would strengthen our faith in you, that you would take this wonderful foundational truth and really firm up the foundation in our lives. And I pray, God, that we would be able to lay our hearts before you and seek your face this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.